even though I haven't had the karma to actually practice with the Thai forest tradition, it's a tradition that I have always taken a lot of inspiration from. And I think it may be that uh, I, I myself have spent some time practicing in nature and have found it to be a great support and something that the Thai forest tradition does. <laughs> um, and it is also something that the Buddha encouraged people to do, to practice in the wilds. And one of the things that the Buddha once said is that it's difficult to practice in the mild in the wild with a mind that is ensnared in delusion. When we practice in the wild, it demands that we be mindful or we will find that the mind keeps falling into states of fear. So because of this, the wilds can actually be a strong support to the strengthening of mindfulness. I'd like to share this evening an inspiring story. At least I found it very inspiring when I heard it. Uh, It's a story from the Thai forest tradition. And this is a story about uh, a monk named Ajahn Pan, who lived in the early 1900s. It was said that he was traveling with a group of monks, and it was coming into the evening time, time to take rest, And so they were settling in an area where there was a lot of tall grass and thick bushes. In settling in for the night, they would set up their umbrella tents, which I can imagine didn't bring a great sense of safety and security. So they were in an area where there was known to be a lot of buffalo, big snakes, wild crocodile, and wild elephants who were known to charge and kill people. In fact, shortly before they uh, arrived in this area, there had been some monks who had been killed by these elephants. And so the villagers, in seeing these monks about to settle there, or they were settling at the time, uh, tried to dissuade them, to tell them to find a safer place to spend the night. But they had already started to put up their umbrella tents. And there's a, a rule that they follow that once they have set up their tent, they need to stay there for the duration of the night. And Ajahn Pan actually reiterated to the monks that this is because they must be willing to die for the Dhamma. And so... Hearing this, that there was these wild elephants around, Ajahn Pan instructed his monks to do Brahma-vihara practice. So they settled in for the evening, and around 10 o'clock, the elephants came, and they were led by a big bull. Ajahn Pan's tent was the first tent that they came to, and this big elephant stood right over top of the Ajahn. He stood there motionless. And it's said that both sides of the elephant went on either side of the Ajahn. And then he proceeded on. And one by one, all of the elephants passed by. And then the last elephant had a mischievous nature. And the villagers actually would call this elephant Twist, 
because he had one twisted tusk. And so he passed by the Ajahn's tent, and then after he had passed by, he turned around and went to charge. The Ajahn sat there, motionless, unperturbed. He later described what was going through his mind. He said, with aspiration to awakened understanding, my mind was equanimous. If I were to die in this mind state, I would go straight to Tushita heaven and be watching the elephant from there. The Ajahn then directed his mind to know the mind of his disciples. He said, I then looked into the minds of my four companions and saw that they all aspired toward awakened understanding. I felt relieved that my fellow monks all had the same intention. The story then goes on that the big bull elephant managed to stop, twist. He stopped them from charging, and then the big bull elephant walked up in front of the Ajahn kneeled down and lifted up his trunk as if he was paying respect. The Ajahn was reported to have said that the bull must have been a bodhisattva. I was very moved by this story. There was a couple of things that really struck me about it. The first was that these monks had such faith and trust in the nobility of their aspiration that allowed them to be there without flinching, without wavering. You know, I'm really not sure if I was in the same situation that I could do that. I mean, seeing how I can jump at the sight of a mouse, you know, to have a a bull elephant standing over top of me or one charging me, I think I have a bit of practice to do. (laughs) But they had this unshakable trust in the Dhamma. And it wasn't an unshakable trust that because they had this sense of uh, trust in the Dhamma that they would go unharmed. It was that if they kept their minds in a pure state, no harm would come regardless of the outcome. And then the monks had no fear. And nowhere in the story does it say that these monks were fully enlightened. And that, to me, is also really inspiring. To know that, you know, we don't have to wait to be fully enlightened, to really experience deeply the protection of mindfulness. That we can protect the mind from torments of mind, that we can find a safe, a sense of safety, refuge. The Buddha was also said to be very fearless in the face of danger. Devadatta, who was a cousin of the Buddha, was said to, at one time, get very angry with the Buddha. Devadatta actually wanted to be appointed head of the order 
after the Buddha died. But the Buddha wouldn't do this. And so Devadatta became very angry. And he wanted to kill the Buddha. So first, he hired some archers to go and shoot the Buddha. It's said that the first archer in seeing the Buddha was struck, awestruck, by the nobility of the Buddha. And he couldn't pull that arrow. He couldn't do it. And it's said that he became a disciple. So when this failed, Devadatta decided to hire um, the keeper of a mad, drunk elephant and to have this um, keeper set this elephant upon the Buddha. And it's also said that the Buddha was unshakable, and his metta was so strong that even a mad, drunk elephant stopped, didn't harm him. Such is the power of the mind unperturbed. I get awestruck just by these stories, the potential. And to recognize that there is a journey from fear to fearlessness. That we can work with fear in a way that we can overcome it. That we can, within our own hearts and minds touch into this unshakable quality, this fearlessness. In my own life, fear has played a big part. I think I consider it to be one of my karmic knots. When I look back to being a child, many of my memories are around fear. You know, my first memory of what might be my second memory that um, very young child, and just being frozen with fear, where something seemed so terrifying, I couldn't move. Later in school, you know, just fear that kept me from putting up my hand as a child. You know, fear of whether it was people laughing, fear of being seen as stupid, fear of not knowing the answer. Um, Seeing the ways that fear held me back kept me from trying, kept me from really applying my energy, effort, where there became a sense of safety from just staying within the confines of the known, not wanting to push the edge, being too afraid to do that, and then living life from uh, you know, a sense of living in the safety zone, comfort zone. And out of that, one doesn't grow. One doesn't um, move into the unknown, doesn't seek out new experiences. We also can find in our lives that we are unconsciously driven by fear. It may not be so apparent in... uh, a mind state or an action that we do. But if we often look at what we do in life, 
we might find that a lot of our actions are based in fear. Sometimes, you know, being driven to get things, possess things, maybe wanting something, you know, solid to hang on to. There can be many different ways that fear will move us. So, in our practice, by letting fear come into the light of awareness, by learning to be mindful when it is present, we allow it to come into consciousness in a way that it doesn't have to run our lives. Because we can see it, we name it, we know it. We learn how to be present in a way that fear loses its power over us. Fear often arises when we encounter unpleasant experience. And when it arises, it can be a very strong mind state where there is a lot of agitation. It can be a lot of anxiety, worry, perplexity. It's caused by either an anticipation of danger or awareness of danger. It can be accompanied by the desire to flee, to run. It can be experienced in a whole range of degrees. Sometimes it will be a subtle feeling of disquiet or apprehension, a sense that we can't quite let go. We can't settle into the moment. Sometimes it's experienced as a dread or an uneasiness which comes from having to face something that brings up fear. And we feel a sense of powerlessness in that we can't avoid this. Sometimes fear is just a moment of fright, a moment of being startled by unexpected experience. Sometimes it can be a moment of panic. In our practice, it might be a moment where it's like the sense that suddenly the bottom drops out, a moment of groundlessness, and panic arises. Or it could be horror, a sense of horror, where there's a combination of fear and aversion and a sense of repugnance with this. Sometimes it's a trepidation, which is dread that has a hesitancy with it. Or it can be full-blown terror, where there's an intensity, a feeling of being overwhelmed by the fear. When we look at fear in our lives, we will see that it propels us 
in unhealthy ways. It can really keep us from honoring our nobility of heart. Now, I saw that as that young child that uh, was just too afraid to fully apply myself. Fear of failure, not being good enough, being unworthy. We will often find that the violence in the world is fear-driven, that greed can be based in fear. The world around us can often feed this fear. There came a point in my life where for a couple of years I really didn't want to watch the news. I felt like I was being manipulated by it, that it was being put out in a way that was to instill fear. And I didn't find it helpful. I didn't feel like I had a balance or strength in the mind that could really recognize that and stay in balance. I've seen um, in some people who are close to me that you know, if they don't have a lot of input in their lives beside the news, they become very fearful because the way the world is portrayed through the news can really produce this fear and anxiety. We do live in a world where there is a lot of danger. The danger line within and without. Life is unpredictable. Life is out of our control. Internally, the mind can be very savage, confused, distressed. We can fall into dark states the mind can be obsessed. And we can have a fear of these states. These states where we lose our capacity to see clearly. And this is what happens when fear is present. Someone named Michael Pritchard, I don't actually know who he was, but he said something that I found interesting. He said, fear is like the little dark room where all the negatives are developed. And when fear is strong in the mind, it's easy to fall into negative states. And there's danger in the outer world. Fear is deeply conditioned. If we look at the animal world, if we look at nature, we can see this. I had a retreat once where I was sitting outside a lot. I was sitting in a grove, and it often happened, because I was sitting still, that animals would be very close to me before they realized I was sitting there. And their response was always the same when they would discover me. They would move into terror. They would become very frightened. There was only one animal that didn't seem afraid of me. That was the skunk. 
but I discovered I was afraid of him. <laughs> but animals, you know, if you've seen deer grazing and you make a noise, they're frightened, startled. Many animals have to eat every meal looking over their shoulder. It's deeply encoded. As human beings, we have this same instinct where it can come out of a sense of survival, living in a dangerous world, needing to protect. But as human beings, we don't need to stay caught in it. We don't need to stay identified with the fear. We can learn a wiser way of relating. Because there is said to be both healthy fear and unhealthy fear. Healthy fear will let us know when danger is present and how to wisely respond. But often the mind is so confused that it can't make this discernment. It can't see clearly. And that's why we need to bring in wise attention, mindfulness. Many times as we do so, we will see that the perceived danger is actually a fiction. It's not true. It's some story we're making up. It's some idea, concept that we've become attached to. And this is where we need to find this capacity to be steady with mindfulness, to be able to discern. There's said to be two guardians of the universe. And ah, these guardians, when I first heard someone in a Dharma talk just say two guardians of the universe, I had all these wonderful fantasies of loving beings who were just sitting there waiting to protect us, help us along the way. But I was very surprised when I heard what these guardians of the universe are. In Pali, they're called Hiri and Otapa. And they are moral shame or conscientiousness and the fear of wrongdoing. I think this was at a point where I had also thought that fear is just bad. And then here I'm hearing two states that sound like they're fear-related and they're actually guardians of the world. It kind of surprised me. But these guardians are guardians that arise out of knowing that one can do things that are harmful, hurtful, and out of care and respect choose heedfulness. These guardians are said to be what keep the world from falling into a land of no 
morality. A healthy fear, a description or an example of that, could be um, the desire to stop smoking because of the fear of cancer. So there's some perceived danger, and out of respect and care for oneself, one takes care, is heedful. I found in my practice, through seeing what happens when one is not mindful, there can actually come a fear of not being mindful. And this inspires one to be mindful. But there's also unhealthy fear. Sometimes we may experience uh, wanting to guard against loss of loved ones. We might have deep fear and anxiety about death, the aging process, losing our mental faculties. We might have fear about not being liked, fear of losing our possessions. These can be unhealthy forms of fear especially if we're not aware of them, especially if we try to deny them, if we don't pay attention. I'd like to share something from uh, Rodney Smith, who probably many of you know, who is a teacher, comes to IMS regularly, has for many years. Rodney was also a hospice worker for a number of years, worked with dying people, observed many people going through the death process. So I'd just like to share something from his book. Our aversion to death is conditioned by all the little ways we avoid disagreeable situations throughout life. It is as if a lifetime of escaping from the unpleasant is squeezed to the surface when we face our mortality. The principal reason we escape from situations is because we are afraid to meet the unknown. We are uncertain how the situation will turn out, so we flee in a known and safe direction. But when we are dying, we cannot change our course to make the process safer. This time, there is no turning away from the unknown. Death causes an enormous confrontation with our fear of the unknown. As we go through the dying process, we project memories of other fearful situations in our life onto death. Death becomes the target for a lifetime of accumulated fears. I think just in hearing that could be motivation from someone who's observed many people going through the death process motivation to turn and face whatever fears we may have in our lives. You know, how 
however small they may seem or however big they may be. When we were younger, it may be that we were taught to deny our fear, to you know, be strong, be tough, uh, not be caught in fear. Um, some years ago, I was at the planetarium in New York City in the Museum of Natural History. And I was sitting in the place where they have the space show. Um, and sitting there in this dark room, it had these seats that I think they tilted back, and you're kind of looking up at this big screen out of which outer space appeared on it. And it was like traveling into outer space. And even, you know, the theater would uh, kind of shake. I loved it. It was fantastic. You know, it was a journey through the universe. But there was this small child there, and she started to scream. And her parents sat there and said, You are not afraid. You are not afraid. Oh, I felt for the I mean, to be experiencing something so strongly and to have someone telling you, you're not feeling that. And many of us may have had a similar message that we're not afraid. And at times we are. At times it's very real. And this is where, in these moments, we need a tenderness of heart towards this being that is caught, terrified, frightened. You know, it's in those moments where it would have been nice if someone could have said, you know, just put that gentle hand of compassion on us. But, you know, if other people can't face their fear, they can't help us in this way. And so, you know, from a different perspective, we can hold those people with compassion but sometimes we didn't have people to model that for us. But there is, you know, these stories of the Buddha, awakened beings, who have really found that capacity to move into the unshakable faith, trust, that comes through a clarity of mind, a depth of understanding, the knowledge of the way things are. And then we are not daunted, not afraid, not frightened. But in this journey from fear to fearlessness, we use this fear to help us wake up, to help us understand what is happening here. How are we caught? Where are we caught? We do it by, instead of turning away from the fear, we turn towards the fear. And sometimes we can do it with a, you know, a strength of mind, a courageousness of heart that knows no fear, dive right into it. And sometimes we can only touch the edges of it because it's so strong because it has that potential to totally overwhelm us.
the Buddha, he encouraged people to reflect upon death because this is a way of getting in touch with the fear of death. And this can be a very strong underlying fear that we have. And, you know, many times you might think, I'm not afraid of death, and then find yourself confronted in some way, and you see, oh yeah, there is fear. But as a practice of actually bringing to mind the moment of our death, bringing to mind uh, death of loved ones, can help us get in touch with this fear. Getting in touch with this fear, can we begin to see how that fear has actually been holding us back? And when we face it, we can find that we have the capacity to be vitally alive when we're not run by this fear. I'd like to share a teaching from a Tibetan teacher, Sogyal Rinpoche. Um, You might remember him. uh, One of the books he's famous for is the Tibetan book on uh, living and dying. He said, No one can die fearlessly and in complete security until they have truly realized the nature of mind. For only this realization deepened over years of sustained practice, can keep the mind stable during the molten chaos of the process of dying. Through the process of our life, through the process of dying, we will inevitably meet situations, circumstances, that are either very unpleasant that are completely new and unknown to us, where fear can arise. And we need to learn to stabilize the mind. Really, how to protect the mind. And we do this in our lives through our practice, paying attention to the different ways fear arises, and in our lives. I'd just like to speak about a few of the different ways that we may experience fear, where we have a fear of the future, where not knowing what's going to happen in the future brings up a sense of insecurity. We want to be able to control things, And so a common way that this manifests as we practice is that we sit here obsessively planning the future, trying to control what will happen. And of course, you know, when we find ourselves in that future event, it never unfolds according to how we planned it. You know, the conditions are always changing. And so it, it really is a futile exercise And yet this is a way we can see that that there's an insecurity um, and this wanting to control our future. We can have a fear of events. 
know, in our lives, it might be walking down dark streets or, or flying in airplanes or a fear of terrorists. You know, that's something I think a lot of people have a fear of these days. On retreat, there can also be fear of events. You know, it may be that we find in the dining room amidst a lot of people when we've been used to be practicing in our room, suddenly it feels really uncontrollable and fear comes up. Fear that we might do something really stupid or drop something in the middle of the dining room. We might have strong fear that food will run out. Maybe uh, sometimes we're in the hall practicing and everyone else leaves and there's a fear of being alone. There can be fear of failure fear that we're inherently flawed, unworthy, fear that we can't do the practice. There can be fear of rejection, that people might not like us. We can have fear of body pain. This is a level of fear that's very accessible in our practice. That, you know, especially if we find that we have a body that can sit comfortably for any period of time, uh, we might just fall into a way of practice where we sit for that period of time, get some degree of concentration, pain starts to come, we just get up, move on. I was a number of years ago sitting with Sayadaw Ujanika. And I was at that time, you know, I could sit for an hour quite comfortably, and then I would get up. I didn't see anything wrong with it. It seemed quite balanced to me. And he kept pushing on me to sit longer. I was stubborn. I kept refusing. But then finally one day I did. I sat longer. It was very interesting. No, no longer in my comfort zone. I was in unknown territory. It was scary. I fought a lot. Um, Brought up a lot of insecurity. And it brought up the sense of, I'm no good. I can't do this practice. It was pushing an edge. You know, because if we look at time of death, it's quite likely we will be in pain. And there will be nowhere to go. So in our practice, even just playing that edge a bit. And, you know, it's not that you need to sit until you really can't move, you know, until um, you've done some terrible damage to the body, but just playing the edge and really looking to see what's happening in that moment. You know, what is so unbearable? We can have a fear of mind states. If we've suffered in our lives from depression, we often will carry a fear of getting stuck in that depression. Or if we're someone whom is really hard on ourselves, very judgmental, you know, as if there's a lot of self-hatred, we can be afraid of getting caught in that mind state. If we don't learn to face that fear, we will find that we become very fragmented 
insecure. We can even find that we have fear of fear itself, this state of fear. I was once practicing with Sayadaw Upandita and working with my karmic knot of fear. It was arising quite strong, um, at times, you know, con- pretty consistently, and you know, always being encouraged to be mindful of it. And I thought I was. And then one day, Sayadaw said to me, Are you noting fear with fearing mind? And I knew instantly I was. No, as if I was facing this wild tiger, and I was having this little feather in my hand, and I'm going, Fear. Fear, fear. (laughs) Of course, it was ineffective. It wasn't helping. But real mindfulness, it has acceptance. It's simply mirroring the experience. It's not judging. It has a strength to it. It brings in that coolness of mind. This is just fear. We can have a fear of impermanence. This many of us come to see as we practice. As we see things so continually changing, arising and passing away, sometimes there's this sense of groundlessness as if the earth crumbles beneath our feet. Everything we touch is simply decaying. Strong vulnerability can bring up fear. Many of us will find there's a fear of annihilation. I'd like to share a teaching from the ninth century Zen master, Juan Po, he said, People are afraid to forget their minds, fearing to fall through the void with nothing to stay their fall. They do not know that the void is not really void, but the realm of the Dhamma. I think it's important with both impermanence and this fear of annihilation to know that there is some concept or belief in the mind that is not a true reflection of how things are. And we, what we will find, if we really can pay attention in these moments when that type of fear arises, we can look and see if there is a concept there, if there is a belief there, And know that this is not the truth. And this is where if we keep working with continuity of mindfulness, we keep drawing upon this um, strength and power that comes through mindfulness, we will be able to see into the true nature of this experience.
in our lives, it's to learn how we can be inclusive of the state of fear and not be stopped by it. I'd like to share a, um, something from Aung San Suu Kyi, whom, as probably most of you know, was elected to be the democratic leader in Burma, but has never been allowed to govern the country, has spent a number of years under house arrest in very hard conditions at times. And to me, she is a woman who doesn't let herself be stopped by fear. She says, Fearlessness may be a gift, but perhaps more precious is the courage acquired through endeavor, the courage that comes from cultivating the habit of refusing to let one's own fear dictate one's actions, courage that can only be described as grace under pressure. I know from all that I know about Aung San Suu Kyi, I think of her as being a woman who really embodies this quality of grace under pressure. And that, you know, it's that, that it has come from this willingness not to be stopped by fear. So we let fear be a part of our journey. When it arises, to look and see, what is this fear? To know it in the immediacy of the moment. It's not that we have to go psychologically analyzing what is happening, but to really know this experience of fear. And so the first part is always recognition, to be able to name it. You know, it is that finger wagging that says, Mara, I see you. You know, that this can be a kink, a karmic knot that we get caught in, but learning, looking in our own experience, where does fear arise for us? And that's where retreat is great to see that because it comes in different ways for each of us. You know, whether it is through body pain, mind states, where it's fear of new experiences. We might be fearful of our fellow yogis. We might be fearful of teachers, interviews. Just looking to see where's this contraction of heart. Recognizing it. Being with it. Feeling it. Noticing the thoughts that are connected with it. Noticing what happens if you believe those thoughts. I had one retreat where it was late at night and I was sitting in my room and I got a really strong chest pain. I was sure it was a heart attack. And as I you know, fed those thoughts, uh, the fear got stronger and stronger. And it was becoming unbearable. And then in one moment, I went, it's just a thought. And it just popped that bubble. And it was like, gone.
we will discover the fear as we stay with many disturbing mind states because fear often underlies these. It could be anger and underneath it there's fear. It could be laziness and underneath it there's fear. It could be cutting off from pleasure that which is pleasant and we might discover it's based in fear. We will need continuity of mindfulness to see this. So with fear, recognizing, feeling, experiencing, noticing the thoughts, noticing if there's a concept in the mind, needing continuity. Because if we have a thought that feeds the fear, it can accelerate so quickly. But if we have moment-to-moment mindfulness, we can see the thought in its arising. Sometimes when fear is really strong, overwhelming, we may need to balance the mind. We may need to turn the attention elsewhere. Sometimes we might need to uh, kind of invite in equanimity. In one of my retreats where there was a lot of fear, I, as I often do, named that retreat 108 Ways to Access Equanimity. You know, because it was so strong that what I had to really work with was how to stay balanced. You know, I couldn't directly face that fear in that moment. You know, the the power of mindfulness wasn't that strong. But I could find ways to turn the attention that would help the mind to remain in balance. And then once the balance comes back in, then we can again open to the fear. So a few of the ways that I found um, were one, you know, when terror is really strong, I found that I couldn't just be mindful of the body. You know, if I turned to the breath, it was like there's gasping and, you know, it, it, it brought on more fear. Or if I touched into the body, it felt really cold and death-like. So what I learned is that I could turn the attention just to the edge of the body, and that had a more neutral quality to it. Or I could turn the attention to hearing, and it was less reactive, unless, of course, the fear is caught up in sound. But that can be a place where the mind can find some balance. I found that walking and just paying attention to the soles of the feet tended to bring comfort. And at times, walking fast, you know, and so that there's just the awareness of stepping, stepping, you know, just feeling each step, the mind just being present, and that then there was no room for the fear to come in. Doing metta. Metta itself was first given to monks who were experiencing a lot of fear. Doing metta for ourselves when we're in the state of fear. And Sometimes if we know the metta chant, to just recite the metta chant very quickly, 
Again, there's no room for the fear to come in. It protects the mind. Sometimes just to remember this is an impermanent state. It is born out of conditions. As conditions change, it will change. It will disappear. Just remembering this when it seems so permanent. If there's a lot of thoughts with the fear, to remind oneself to stay in the present moment. And if you're sitting with your eyes closed, sometimes it's really helpful to open your eyes, to stay connected to this moment. Sometimes, you know, it can be putting your hand down on the floor and feeling the coolness of the earth to help stay in contact. Because with fear, we can disassociate, move away, and we become caught in delusion. So we want to stay connected to what is actually happening. It can be a, a long process for some of us to work with fear. That, you know, at first it's as if we can only see it out of the corner of our eyes. That's all we have the capacity for in that moment. But then in other moments, we may be able to plunge straight into it, dive right into it. Sometimes there might even be an intensity beyond belief, but there's that courageousness and willingness of heart to do so. Sometimes just to remember there is the possibility of doing that, to see. We never know when the moment will come, when that strength of heart is there to simply meet this mind state, to know it for what it is, to be able to stay connected, to stay trusting in the power of awareness, where we have a confidence in our practice. This helps us to dispel the power that we have given to fear by taking it to be something that it's not. A healthy form of fear is that so long as we keep, is to know that so long as we keep moving through the cycles of samsara, we will never be safe. Now, even when we enjoy the best of circumstances in our lives, we may at times live in situations where we feel very secure, and yet things can change in any moment. If we have this form of fear, it will help us to look deeply into our hearts and minds, to come to know that which is fearless, that which is a true refuge.
So in our practice here, having that willingness to know fear, to let it be a part of the journey, to understand what's happening, to understand the true nature of this mind state. Embarking on the journey from fear to fearlessness. I'd like to just close with a teaching from the Buddha. This is from the Dhammapada. For one who is awake, non-perplexed, whose mind is uncontaminated, and who has abandoned both good deeds and bad, fear does not exist. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.